Hey, everyone. As a listener of the Elevate podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew about the Elevate Club. The Elevate Club is a new and exclusive membership community where over 100 members from around the world are working together to build their capacity. The Elevate Club is where I'm investing most of my time to connect with readers and listeners and answer their questions. Members of the Elevate Club get 12 months of access to a private Slack community for experience sharing and peer learning, private keynotes with me, monthly office hours, and free access to my courses on core values or remote work for up to three people. To learn more about the Elevate Club and sign up today, just go to elevate-club.com. That's E-L-E-V-A-T-E-club.com, or you can click on the link in the show notes. I hope to see you in the Elevate Club. The big wins are through a really thick brick wall. But, you know, after a while, you've got a concussion and your forehead's bleeding, you know, maybe you got to stop hitting your head against the brick wall. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Steve Jobs, innovation distinguishes between a leader and a follower. My guest today, Brant Cooper, is the New York Times bestselling author of The Lean Entrepreneur and the CEO of Moves the Needle. Brant has over two decades experience helping companies bring innovative products to market, is a global keynote speaker, mentor, and trusted advisor to many entrepreneurs. Brant, welcome. Great to have you on the Elevate Podcast. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me. So particularly with people that are entrepreneurial, I like to start early. So what what was your first job? First job was... Well, the first thing you got paid for, I guess, if you're going to remember. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, like way back in the day, I think my first job was at a sort of a resort club uh, in Virginia. It was kind of rural Virginia now. Uh, now it's like bedroom community Virginia, but there was a a lake there, the owner that would uh, open it up to people in the summertime. And I, and I worked, I worked there, uh, boy, back in sixth or seventh grade or something. So that was my first thing I think I got paid for. My first sort of quote unquote real job after college was working for a small consulting company, actually also back in that area, back in Washington, D.C. And, and were you always, were you an entrepreneurial kid? Were you not paying attention in school, selling homework, those sort of things, or were you, <laughs> there tend to be some early signs. Yeah, no, I mean, I, no, uh, <laughs> it's funny because I, I never considered myself an entrepreneur, to be honest. Got it. Yeah. So then, yeah, let's, let's talk about that then. So what was the uh, career progression from sort of your first job into, into innovation and into entrepreneurship? Right. So, so early on, I knew that I did not see myself in sort of a regular normal job. It's not what I wanted to do. So yeah. when I went to college and everybody else was in college, it seemed in order to be trained for a particular job, yeah. I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to take a more classic, I guess what they call liberal arts education, where I took a little bit of absolutely everything and had really no big career ambitions uh, in any way. And so what typically happens with people like that is that you look for, you know, towards your, your last years there, you look at law school or, or business school. Yeah. And neither of those I went and, you know, I did some, uh, interning with law firms 
I did and that too. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I interned with two law firms and I determined I did not want to be exactly a lawyer. Exactly right. Yeah. Same with me. Getting coffee wasn't a great introduction to the law, <laughs> but yeah. 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 I don't know. There's something about it. I think that, you know, I can appreciate the thinking and there's a ton of analytical ability in that uh, re- required in that. And so I, I'm drawn to that part of it, but yeah, I just, I couldn't see myself in that career. So then I, you know, I just got a job actually through my dad for a small, it was a defense related consulting company and I had to move back East to take it. And I lasted a year and I dropped out and wrote a, a book. So <laughs> I think that, you know, even after a year of that, I was all like, wait a second, this is not what I signed up for. Even though I can't say that I had, I mean, you know, maybe I guess I wanted to be a great American novelist, but, you know, I was not born some sort of a genius. And if you're in your 20s, you pretty much don't know anything. <laughs> so, so you start your first job, you quit within a year, but then you decide to write a book. And what was right. the book on? It was a novel. Okay. Wasn't wasn't a business leadership book. No, exactly. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was equally, I don't know, sophomoric just on the literature stage. And so, like I was saying, you kind of don't really know anything about the world and life, I don't think. And so, uh, you know, it was, I gave it the old the try, but it really wasn't much of a book. So, so that was, you know, sort of within the first couple of years out of college, I tried a job and I walked away from a job. And I think there was actually something powerful in the ability to walk away from a job. In that sense, I guess one would call entrepreneurial, but I wouldn't still call myself an entrepreneur. Uh, it was entrepreneurial in the sense that it's empowering to realize that you can walk away from a job. Yeah. And I realize there's a lot of people in the world that are not in that situation, but it is still very empowering because it just, it means that you you trust that you can rely on yourself to figure it out. And so that's what I did. And, and the, a lot of the theme of your working career is, has been innovation. So what, was there an early experience that, that drove you to that focus or what, what was sort of the impetus for the focus on, on innovation? Yeah. So I think it was, startups. So so after I did my stint there back east, I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. And, you know, I'm sort of dating myself. But in those times, I was the guy that was in a company that I was the only one that understood computers. So I was always the computer guy. And so, uh, you know, again, I worked for these smaller consulting firms, and I became an IT manager. And this is before there were whole, you know, you could graduate with an IT degree. So uh, I just kind of was the computer guy. And so I did that for several years until I took that into a startup. So I was in, I was commuting down to Redwood City from Oakland and I worked in my first startup. And so then that was like eye-opening to me because there was an example of real entrepreneurs and a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. And here's a company that, you know, people are responsible for doing whatever they can do to move the company forward. So things are measured based upon impact on company, not based upon how many times you're doing a particular task. And so that was sort of eye-opening to me, right? Is that there was this, there were these business entities that were not operated by, you know, MBAs and the four Ps of marketing and, and, and the management of science or the science of management. So that's what I did for the next 10 years was, was working in these different startups. And, and so when did you decide to write The Lean Entrepreneur? 
So after I left my last startup that was, you know, kind of a failure, I was blogging about my experiences and I was blogging about how we need to be in sort of in this learning mode, like the what was successful in the startups that where things worked is exactly what I was saying before, right? It's sort of this impact driven, you know, you're wrestling with uncertainty and trying to figure stuff out, right? That's what a startup is, is trying to figure stuff out. And so I was blogging about that. And I think it was Sean Ellis turned me on to Steve Blank. And so Steve Blank was starting to get popular with his Four Steps of the Epiphany. And Eric Reese had just started blogging about the lean startup. And so there was a group of us, probably about 100 people uh, pretty quickly on a Google group. And they're all tech entrepreneurs from around the world, but mostly Silicon Valley. I was down in San Diego by that time. Um, but so I ended up writing the first book that talked about customer development and lean startup and product market fit. And that was self-published and did pretty well as a self-published book for the first time. And then the publishers kind of come at you after you do that. And so the lean entrepreneur was a follow-up to that book, but also a follow-up to other books that had started being written about the lean startup. And it was a deep dive into how do you understand your customers and how do you test your assumptions? All of these things that you're trying to figure out. How do you run purpose-built experiments, um, you know, sort of in a very disciplined fashion to try to learn what will work and what are the right metrics to track? And so that lean entrepreneur was a deep dive into all of that. And that's actually what got me into corporates and therefore innovation because the corporates looked at these books and thought, well, heck, we're, we're pretty experienced at, at launching products for millions of dollars that nobody wants. So maybe we could benefit from some of this. And so we started, I uh, formed Moves the Needle and we started taking, you know, how to ignite this entrepreneurial spirit in large companies. So I know one of the big themes of the book is the uh, myth of the, the visionary. Why, why do you believe that entrepreneurs are made and not born? I know this is, a, this is an ongoing debate. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think it, it's, it's like everything in life. You know, it's not black or white. There's a yeah. continuum there. And I think that people are born more entrepreneurial than other people. And so I, I kind of think about it more as this continuum. And I'm on that continuum. And I'm on the continuum in a location where I don't think people wouldn't normally, at least back in the day, go, oh, there goes an entrepreneur. And so I think that like everything else, there are people that are born with that that ethos that they're just going to go do it themselves and they're not going to seek permission and they're not going to seek approval and they're not going to ask anybody else. They're just going to go do it. And then there's other people that are farther away on that, which is, you know, no, I'm not going to do anything until somebody tells me what to do. And then I'm going to do what they tell me to do. <laughs> and so I think everybody in between those two endpoints uh, can be taught how to be more entrepreneurial. Yeah, you know, as I said that, and I listened to your answer, I think uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a new thesis. Maybe you can tell me <laughs> if you agree with it or not, right? I think entrepreneurs are born to an extent, but successful entrepreneurs are probably made. In fact, a lot of the natural tendencies that entrepreneurs have are pretty destructive. <laughs> and it's only until they go through some failures and stuff. Look, Steve Jobs was, you know, fired and all this stuff until he figured out how to how to compensate for some of the things that he didn't do well and otherwise. So what, what would you say to that thesis? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's, I think that's spot on. And so I love that you use Steve Jobs as an example, because 
I actually, I, I'm totally happy calling Steve Jobs visionary, but it's not really for the reasons that the myth exists, right? Yeah. I mean, so the myth, and I talk about this in, in a couple of my keynotes I used to do, but I, I don't know if you remember Ross Perot, yeah. but Ross Perot was, you know, for the younger people in your audience, ran for president back in the 90s. But he was actually an investor in Jobs Company Next. Yeah. And he literally just rolled out this myth of the visionary trope, you know, that he literally said that Steve Jobs invented the Apple computer in his garage with a wooden crate his dad had given him, you know, it's just, it was hilarious because of, of course, there's just none of that that was true. And that is the myth. The myth is, you know, in order to be a successful entrepreneur, you can foresee the future and, you know, you have this, uh, this uh, moment, this epiphany, and you've seen this product that's going to emerge. And so, you know, you're drawn to, you must go build the product. And so that part of it, I think, is, is sort of destructive for some people because they either come up with an idea and believe that they have to just go out and, and build it and they don't need to test it and they're, they're a visionary or there's other people that go like, oh, geez, I, you know, I can't see the future. I must not be entrepreneurial. And so I think that that's really the destructive part of the myth. Yeah. And what's funny to me is that it even goes all the way back to Thomas Edison. You know, so the whole, the whole representation of that epiphany of that eureka moment is the light bulb. And the most hilarious thing about all of that is that Thomas Edison did not invent the light bulb. And what he did that was visionary is, you know, maybe it's visionary, but they ran thousands of experiments trying to figure out what the right material was to make a filament such that the light bulb could be marketable. And he leveraged the gas infrastructure in, in the cities to run his wiring so he could put his light bulbs all over the city. And he did... Uh, he created this market. And so it's really funny to me that Thomas Edison, the light bulb is representative of this technology idea, this technology epiphany, when in fact, both he and Steve Jobs had to learn their way through the unknown and had to do a ton of stuff on the marketing and understanding customers and understanding the ecosystem. They had to build the demand as much as it was you know, inventing any one particular piece of technology. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Fast forward to the end of 2024 and think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? 
If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations. I've tried Babbel. It's fun, it's interactive, and in just a few minutes a day, I could see that it was making a difference and helping my comprehension and retention. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com elevate. Get 55% off at babbel.com elevate, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com elevate. Rules and restrictions may apply. Yeah, but it, I think it's also in listening to it, like it, it. Why I love the podcast, how I built this, is because you see all these really successful businesses and they're like near death moments when it was like really bad that you didn't hear about, and the person was just determined to walk through the mud and get to the other side because they just fundamentally believed in whatever it was. So I think what visionaries are good at is setting a future mark. And if they're passionate and they believe in, they believe that that thing has to exist, like the light bulb, they'll just keep going, sometimes irrationally, <laughs> but they'll keep going until it gets there. And so they're able to pull people, you know, along on that journey. That's different than just kind of like having this idea because it's not going to work. Like if you're, if you're going to quit after the first 500 filaments that don't work, then, then it's not going to happen. Right. I, I think they're just really good about keeping people on that, on that journey through the mud versus conversely, like, there's some people I talk to and I, I sort of use this word entrepreneur. I think some people are better off as entrepreneurs. Like they kind of float throughout the company and do the play, the entrepreneurial within an organization, which is very right. different, but they like to try the new stuff with, with the safety, you know, of the organization and otherwise. But I, I've talked to some people over the years some friends where they're like, well, they just try to deconstruct. So you're going to do this thing. And how do you know what happens when you go here? And what happens, like, like they can't even conceive of starting down this journey, not even not knowing what the endpoint is, but knowing what every stair is going to look like. <laughs> and I'm like, it, even if I'm pretty convinced on the endpoint, you've probably seen this drawing. Like there's the beginning, there's the endpoint, and then there's like a cliff and a fall off and an up and a down. And like, it's just not even going to go that way. And that's when I'm like, you probably should keep your day job because yeah, it, I agree with you on all that. You're, you're so stressed about, get the exact playbook of how this is going to go from A to Z. That's, that's kind of not what entrepreneurship entrepreneurship is like, I'm convinced there's gonna be a flying car and I'm going to like die trying. And I have no idea how that's actually going to happen. Yeah, I guess I, the way I put it, I agree with you totally, but I, the way I put it is, is that the entrepreneur actually doesn't get married to the idea. They get married to the change that they want to make. Right. I mean, I think that if you, if you looked at what people said Steve Jobs' vision was, it was that everybody would have a computer. Well, that vision didn't come true until the iPhone. It did come true, but it took a long journey and a lot of different products to get there. And so I think that that perseverance is really critical. I mean, I agree with you. That's like one of the most fundamental aspects of the entrepreneur. But what's weird about it is that it's also listening to the market. And so there's this crazy balance of like, no, I'm going to keep at it, but you're keeping at it until you actually hear the market. And then you go like, well, that's product market fit, right? Then you go like, wow, I found it. Yeah. So like even in the Steve Jobs example, the iPhone didn't really take off 
until they opened up the app store to third-party developers, which was in 2008 and not 2007, because Steve Jobs refused to open up the app store to third-party developers. But the market pulled it out of him and he didn't like deny himself because he was stuck in his vision. He was willing to change. And that's when that's when the phone became a platform. Well, I think there's a key point there. I'm not sure that Steve Jobs 1.0 would have made that decision, right? But after Apple, after Next, after having sort of trusted advisors and confidants who were comfortable pushing him on that stuff, you know, he would have probably gone down on that chip and that decision <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> earlier right. on. But but it's as you said before, when you're going down these journeys, it's going to suck and it's not going to not work. And so when someone just has a clever idea that they're not really passionate about and they want to start a company, I'm always like, well, when it starts getting bad, like what's going to make you want to fight to the other? Like that's not compelling enough to fight to the other other side. And that's because that's exactly what you're saying. It's It's bigger. The other thing is that it's a small degree between... <laughs> crazy it can work and crazy flying too close to the sun. There was a company a few years back, I think called Quarky. Do you remember remember this company? No, it does not ring a bell. So they were trying to democratize product development. So they had raised like $100 million and they were just crowdsourcing product ideas and you'd own a piece of it and, you'd, and they'd get all these ideas and they'd build the product and they'd launch it and they were using like crowdsourcing and they had these incredible packaging and all this stuff. And, and the company, like, it was an incredibly ambitious sort of thing to change how products were made. And I, I was reading sort of the epitaph of the of the company when I went under. And it was sort of like, it could have gone either way. Like it was so crazy that they just, <laughs> they, they flew, he flew really close to the sun. The CEO had for a while. I think he was the founder of Mophie, like the cell phone case. And, and it was just too hard and didn't, like it was such a big thing and it didn't work and it was hard. But like, I, I felt a little bit this way on the, 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 I know this is probably controversial, but on the on the fire Festival, like, I, I mean, yeah, he's kind of a con artist, but like, did he really believe that he could pull this thing? Like, would, did he delusionally right. believe that he could pull that thing off? <laughs> right. <laughs> or did he know he couldn't pull it off? Uh, and then, right. you know, it, it, sometimes it really feels like it's five degrees. Yeah, no, it's funny because I, you know, especially I love that you keep, you sort of bring up the, it's the people that have gone through failures that get it. And that's just like 100% right. And I work with, you know, young entrepreneurs all the time. I'm mentoring or talking to them or whatever. And you always kind of get asked, like, it was like, well, when do you know when to give up or how do you know when to keep going and all the rest? And it's, it's like one of those unanswerable questions. And I, and I sit there and I tell them, I go, well, you know, the big wins are through a really thick brick wall. Yeah. But, you know, after a while, you've got a concussion and your forehead's bleeding, you know, maybe you got to stop hitting your head against the brick wall. And like, is there any other answer? I mean, it's like, I don't know, man. Yeah. But what's going to make you go through that wall? I remember one of my favorite episodes of uh, how I built this was with the founder of Peloton. And again, look today, multi-billion dollars, runaway hit. For an entire year, his wife tried to get, did everything went wrong. And his entire year, his wife tried to get him to go out to dinner with her. And he said, I will only go out to dinner if we talk about where we're going to live and what we're going to do once Peloton is bankrupt, because that's the conversation we're not having. They had tapped out their 401k. They had tapped out everything. And the sort of seminal story was when they got down to like, they got this prototype, they had to get it to like a key show. They're like down to the last dollar. And it comes in like oversized by 30% from Asia, like before the trade show. So like, it's a bike, like way out of proportion for like 30%. So, so, wow. 
the non-entrepreneur would be like, oh crap, like we're doomed or whatever. Like, so, so what do you, what do you think he did? Uh, well, I'm not sure what oversized <laughs> means, so I'm not picturing. So like, it. imagine like a normal bike would have been, you know, a Peloton size. It came in as like 40% bigger proportionally, like, like, you know, like too big. Like the bike was designed the wrong size and, and, and proportion. So what he did was he went and found a six foot five, I think yeah, female model. Yeah. Like big person. Right. He found a six foot five, like female model to like sit on it so that it looked normal for the videos and stuff that they were doing um, because they only had this one bike. So that, that, that I remember listening to that. I remember where I was running and being like that, that is what an entrepreneur does. Like, like, all right, you know, my last dollar on the bike comes back wrong. Like again, what, like, how are we going to move forward? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the visionary piece, like, I, I think it, I mean, there is some question if you don't have it, naturally i think it's an important part of being entrepreneur like how do how do entrepreneurial leaders develop that yeah i mean again i just i boy i just think that people become passionate about change that they want to make because they don't, it's not like you see a product floating out in the ether and then you get excited about that it's about yeah. what is it what's the impact it has on people's lives and, that, and this doesn't have to be from a social impact perspective but it could be but I mean, I, you know, I don't know, take any of those entrepreneurs that you've mentioned. And when they envisioned the world, the point wasn't the product. The point was the change in what they were bringing to people in the world. And I think that that's where the vision has to be. And then you, you have to, you ought to be product agnostic in order in achieving the vision. Right. And, and then it's how relentlessly you're willing to pursue the vision that that change in the world that that indicates whether you're successful or not, and and I guess that's the other thing that I kind of see out in the entrepreneurial world. It's like people want to automate absolutely everything. I'm like, go talk to your customers, and they go like, well, what do you mean, like a survey? I no, go talk to them. I mean, <laughs> yeah. people don't want to do the simplest thing. They don't want to go knock on a door. People ought to be willing to be a vacuum cleaner salesperson if they're really like, truly in love with what they're doing. You know, go knock on the freaking doors. And so I, I, I just, there's not that many people that are willing to go that far. So it's interesting that you, that you say that. I, I remember I briefly worked in venture capital and I remember we hear these businesses and they're like, well, what is the bit? Well, we're stealth, it's stealth. We can't talk about it. Um, right. Top secret. So therefore you're not going to find out whether you have like 12 competitors or someone has a better idea. And I ended up working at the time for an entrepreneur. He was actually, he's, he's since passed away but he invented automatic flushing toilets uh, and had the patent for it. And he had, I think he had over like a hundred patents, absolute brilliant entrepreneur had founded multiple companies. And, and he had me doing some research on things he was working on. And, and one of them at the time was to be able to print. And this is a while ago, like use digital printing on like liquor bottles and, and stuff that was all done through traditional screen printing and otherwise. And he just had the patent and knew how to do it. So he'd had me go to talk to all the customers and say, if the machine had this capacity and could do this at this price point, would you buy it? And what features, you know, were you looking for? And I was like, are you worried about uh, them? He's like, they don't know how to make the machine, <laughs> but I need to know that they're, that if I make the machine, that they're going to buy it and it does what they want. It's the right price point. I, I just learned a lot from him. He, you know, he would not yeah. only eat the dog food, but he, you know, he was the opposite of all of these young, you know, people locked in this room, staying in their stealth out there. Like, 
you know, finding the customer, asking questions. If it's so simple that the customer could do it themselves, you know, by you just telling them the idea, then it's probably not a super defensible idea anyway. Totally right. Totally. And the thing is, is that, you know, I think that getting back to like the books, the lean entrepreneur and lean startup and customer development, they are all just attempting to document or to help define what successful entrepreneurs always did. In the very first book that I wrote about all of this stuff, uh, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Customer Development, I had to go find four case studies of people that behave this way who had never heard of the terms because we had just invented the terms. Eric and Steve and others had just then invented the terms. And it wasn't that difficult. You'd go find these successful people and you could go figure out, well, how did they figure this out? And what was an experiment they ran? Oh, like, well, we set up a fake website and tried to get people to buy cars. I mean, it's like entrepreneurs are are just already out there willing to do it. And, And we just tried to codify what the successful ones did. We didn't, I don't think invent anything. I remember, you know, Tim Ferriss wrote this book, one of the most successful books ever, the four hour work week. And I think he like, similar, a bunch of people did this, like, well, how do you know what to title it? Well, I set up three fake books that people could buy with different titles and went and bought ads and I see which one converted the right. best. Like, <laughs> duh, like, you know, that would not occur to like 99% of most people. Totally exactly right. Yep. I, I remember a bunch of people just setting up literally stores trying to sell the product before it even existed to get a sense of, hey, would people would people buy this and what would they pay for it? I think that's technically legal, but entrepreneurs are are, are good at uh, uh, skirting the rules. Yeah, they're willing they're willing to push the envelope a little bit. Supposedly, a story that I read was that uh, the guy who invented the very first kit personal computer, uh, which ended up on you know, one of the electronics magazines and the computer had actually gotten lost on a train to the publication. And so what actually appeared on the cover was a fake. So there's, there's another example of a fake, right? And then this guy saw this and called him up and phone and said, yeah, you know, I've got an operating system for that computer. And I'm wondering if you wanted to partner with me. And the guy's all like, well, I know you don't have an operating system for the computer because the only one that exists in the world is sitting here in my in my office. And it turned out that guy was Bill Gates. Yeah. So this idea of trying to, you know, close a deal, sell it before making it is like as old as, you know, anything else in the world. Hi, everyone. If you're not a subscriber to Harvard Business Review, you're missing out on a wealth of leadership content. Widely acknowledged as the leader in business leadership information, Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their incredible podcasts. Premium subscribers can also access a selection of Harvard Business School real-world case studies and scenarios that provide business leaders with the learnings from how business leaders manage their business, their team, and themselves. When I need a source or data that I can trust for one of my articles, HBR is my go-to, Just this week, I referenced one of their articles about the efficacy of required diversity training, which had the most data behind it by far. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at just $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions 
and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. With everyone fighting for attention these days, how can you get your business to stand out and connect with customers? It's easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media postings, and even event management. You'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing that your emails are actually reaching your customers, thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Constant Contact was actually the first email marketing platform I ever used almost 20 years ago, and it's a testament to the product's quality that it's still the standard for email marketing today. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. But by the way, that so there's a similar book. I remember reading it was like called The Difference Between God and Larry Ellison. And Larry Ellison, when Oracle started, would go out on sales calls all day. People would tell them what they wanted. And he'd say, yeah, Oracle 1.0 can do that. And then he'd go back to the engineers at night and, and say, make it do that by tomorrow. Now, again, <laughs> yeah. a lot of people, but flip this, a lot of people would think, oh, that's terrible. But these are people you know, as opposed to, again, the stealth or sitting there, the engineer never finishes it or eating their own dog food or just guessing, like, it's much better to ask the market what it needs and, and, and build into it. Yeah, I think that there's the slippery slope is the companies that say they're building it and they're not because they're trying yes. to keep away their competition. But for people that are actually going home and then creating that value for the customer, man, more power to them. I mean, I think, like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So let's talk quickly about your new book, Disruption Proof. What's it about and what prompted you to write it? Well, so what prompted me to write it is really the last six, seven, eight years trying to bring this entrepreneurial spirit into the enterprise and, and inside those companies. You know, typically I would start over in the innovation group because they were already working on uncertainty. And, and in the end, I guess that's what I think the entrepreneurial spirit is really for. It's what it's good at, you know. It, Everybody can learn to execute. I think it's what do you do when you actually don't know the answer? And so that's the entrepreneurial spirit is dealing with that uncertainty. And so we started in the innovation groups, but we quickly figured out that everybody in the company, even the, the core product salespeople face uncertainty. And, and so everybody needs at least a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit. And so as I was exploring that topic, I think what, what, you know, others have already figured out. But what occurred to me was that uh, we, we sort of live in a time of endless uncertainty and endless disruption. And uh, it's just a more complex world. And so we're not in this industrial age anymore where things are really defined by the assembly line and literally tailors, you know, the science of management. And that was a relatively simple less complex time and the digital nature of our interconnectedness and the speed of information and the power of consumers with computers in their pockets means that we're, we're not in that, that paradigm anymore. And so fundamentally, I believe that the way we organize and manage all of our institutions is fundamentally going to change education, government, business. 
And so that's what this book is for. This book is how do we look at evolving that change inside of business and why leaders need to pick it up and how they can do it. And it's really around uh, behavior change from the ground up, uh, a lot of, you know, sort of agile principles and design thinking, but it's really not about the tactical work as much it is, as it is around organizing and structuring the work and the behavior so that uh, businesses can function in, in the 21st century facing all of this uncertainty and, and really what I think is endless disruption. I think that people confuse the pandemic. Yes, the pandemic caused lots of acceleration, I think, acceleration right? yeah, yeah. of the disruption that was already going on. And if you look at all of the other things that happened in this one crazy year from Black Lives Matter to the energy grid in Texas to a ship, you know, stuck in the canal that disrupts global supply chains, you know, to a capital insurrection. I mean, this is just stuff is going to be, this is the new normal for now. And so we have to create organizations that are able to weather the storm, that are that, that can be flexible and change quickly and are aware of all of the changes that are going on. So that's what the new book is, Creating Disruption-Proof Businesses. So we had uh, Safi Bakal, uh, who wrote Loon Shots, um, was on the podcast last year. And, and I don't know if you read that book, but one of the core premises, I think, of that book around innovation was that operation and innovation teams... <laughs> need to be kept away from each other. There's, you know, keeping the train on the tracks and then there's building a new train. And and it, those are fundamentally different functions for a larger organization. Like, do you, do you agree with that premise? I don't. I did. I think it's now just sort of, uh, that was great for the 80s and the 90s when, when companies were inventing new technology. Yeah. Um, but that's not the world that we're in now. And so I, I think it's, the technology, to be honest, is not where there's the risk. The risk is on the business and marketing and you know, business models, marketing and, and sailing and, and how we're going to find growth. That's where the risk is. And so those same principles that were used, you know, the quote unquote scientific method used to invent new technology really needs to be in the core business. So I don't agree with it. Uh, you know, I kind of went along with it for a while, but I think it's it's wrong, to be honest. And also, you know, for 20 years now, the same five stories are rolled out in support of the need for companies to do, quote unquote, disruptive breakthrough innovation. Yeah. And I don't even agree with that. I don't think that that's what big businesses need to do. I don't know what the evidence is. Well, Google, look at, Google has not really had any successes with its nope. 10x, any of its 10x projects, right? It, it's making 99% of its money off its 15-year-old, 20-year-old advertising business. Which was an acquisition. Yeah. And cloud and maybe some, yeah, like office, whatever their Gmail suite. But um, yeah, a, a bunch of these firms who have tried these kind of 10x VC things, I, I haven't really seen any that have been a success. No, I haven't. I haven't either. I think that there are technology firms, chemistry, you know, I think that if you're building AI, I mean, I, so I don't want to like overstate it. I think yeah. that there are companies that need to invent but they already have R&D. They already know how to do the R&D. They need help getting the R&D to market. They need help, you know, create, finding the applications for their R&D. And so that gets right back to the core business. And so I'm not saying that the core business needs to practice the entrepreneurial spirit to the same degree as an innovation group does. But it's a, again, I'm going to, it's a continuum. And I really, I really think that the 
it's known by a bunch of different names, the ambidextrous or the bimodal or the, the dual operating system model is wrong. And I think it's, I think it's legacy from that, from the industrial age. So your premise is that you can't be excellent these days in accounting or finance or marketing without being continuously innovative. I think you have to be entrepreneurial in all of those endeavors. Yep. Yep. Um, or else the, the speed of the train next to you is just moving too fast. Yep. Or the disruption comes and happens and you break instead of being able to weather the storm. We had uh, ransomware here at a hospital system in San Diego. And so they took down their IT systems. And people are going, oh, like, yeah, people can't schedule. They can't look up their records. But no, it shuts down everything. All of their cancer treatments were shut down for weeks because all of these things are tied into their IT systems and uh, their IT systems don't have the redundancy and they can't go back online without being connected to the network. So they can't go back online. I mean, it's just, it's just, yeah. it's just absolutely incredible. And I, you can just find these examples over and over again, where these, these fluctuations that occur somewhere in the economy, acts of God in the environment or whatever, and they ripple through society in, in ways that just never happened before because of the digital age that we live in. Interesting. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, Brent, last question for you. Uh, and this can be, it's a multi-choice question. So you can, it can be personal and professional and it can be single or repeated. But what's a mistake that you've made in your career that you've learned the most from? Oh man, that I learned the most from. Uh, God, there's so many to choose from. <laughs> Or at least there's so many mistakes to choose from. You know, I think that um, I think that the biggest mistake I make in my life, and again, I think it goes back to almost our first question, is this whole idea about being entrepreneurial. And I think when I think about my life and my career, there's so many times where I've forgotten that if I want to see change, I have to make it myself. And so it's sort of like a mantra that I try to keep now. And it's really, it's really weird. I think that, again, I think that there's some people that it comes natural to, whereas for me, it'll be like, you know, years go by and I'll go like, God, why has nobody ever done anything about this? <laughs> I think there's a famous quote, right? Be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just, it's harder than that though. Right. I yeah. mean, cause there's other people that are involved and there's other people that you respect and there's, and I don't know, maybe you feel like you're not really the one that's up to it and, and or you think you're doing it, but you're not doing it. I think that's actually the, the 
Like, I don't know. I remember there's this time in one of the startups I was, matter of fact, I posted this on LinkedIn last week where the, uh, we literally drove into our place of work on Monday morning and we were greeted with rubble. Our, our building had been burned to the ground over the weekend. And the founders were like, okay, we're going to go see if we can, you know, keep the company afloat. And what they left behind was the VP of sales and me, who was like director of product management, to run really the daily part of building products for our customers and selling them and marketing them. And I think I just whined about it for, <laughs> for a while and my wife at the time said, like, well, why don't you do something about it? This is maybe a pretty big opportunity for you. <laughs> and so I did. And I was like, she was exactly right on. And, uh, you know, I changed the product and, and came up with a different strategy and took over marketing and teamed with the sales and the VP of engineering. And we really just started ramping the company. It was really quite extraordinary. And I was promoted VP of corporate strategy and all this other. And it was like... There's an example, I guess, I don't know if it's a great example of what you asked me, but, you know, sort of this passivity and kind of like feeling like things are not out of my control, learning that you actually are the one that have to go do it and actually getting a positive result out of it. So maybe I'll stick with that one. That works. All right. Well, Brent, where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so I'm I'm Brant Cooper on all social media, LinkedIn, uh, Brant at BrantCooper.com uh, is my email. I encourage people to reach out. Happy to chat with people. Brant, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Robert. It was a fun discussion. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast. We'll include links to Brant and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review. Uh, if you're listening in Apple Podcasts, just select the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down, and you can leave a rating or review in seconds. So thanks you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. Hello, Elevate Podcast listeners. I wanted to let you know about my friend Darius and his amazing show, The Greatness Machine. The Greatness Machine is one of the top-ranked educational and business podcasts in the country, recently ranking top five in the entrepreneurial category on iTunes. Here's why I love Darius and The Greatness Machine. It really comes down to a few things. The Greatness Machine has amazing guests from the likes of sports icon Gabby Reese, worldwide news sensation Amanda Knox, FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, and Tiny Habits expert and author BJ Fogg, to NHL Hall of Famer Chris Pronger, and hundreds more. Darius keeps it real. I always learn something new, and I have a few laughs. And he always also asks great questions, and is a really entertaining and engaging host. The Greatness Machine is where you get to be a fly on the wall and listen to Darius and his amazing group of guests talk about how they got to where they are today and hear stories of people who have lived their passions to create greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. So if you want to be entertained while learning from some of the greatest and most accomplished people in the world, this is definitely a show for you to check out. Subscribe to The Greatness Machine today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.